one in Christ. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians probably for about another three months or so uh, as we unpack and explore one of the coolest, I think, and grandest and majestic and most exciting books in all of the Bible. One in Christ uh, is the title of this series, and I'll explain why we're calling it that uh, in just a moment. But first, I just want to say um, that um, I really appreciate um, the work that Sean does uh, in planning our services. As we were singing, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, I thought, oh man, this is like verse 3 of chapter 1. And I was like, oh, I bet Sean did that on purpose, uh, and he does that kind of stuff. So I just want to want to say, Sean, I appreciate that you're you're thinking like that. All right, uh, let's read the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter one. I've got the verses up on the screen from the NIV. I would encourage you to follow along though uh, in your own copy of God's Word, whether it's on your phone, uh, whether you have a paper Bible in front of you, because uh, it's great to be able to look at things in context as we're going uh, throughout this sermon. So uh, first two verses. Read as follows, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this letter as it was very customary for letters to begin back then. Back then, 2,000 years ago, letter writing style was a lot different than it is now. And back then, you would put your name at the beginning. Now, when you and I write a letter or an email, I can't remember the last time I wrote a letter, but when we write a letter or an email, where does our name go? At the end, right? But 2,000 years ago, that's not the way they did it. They put their name at the beginning. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Grace and peace to you. Now, it says that he's writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. This is the church. Probably a collection of house churches scattered throughout this ancient city of Ephesus. And he's writing to these churches to urge them to be united. To be united. Now, I've got a picture that I'd like to show you that kind of reminds us a little bit of what Ephesus was. Because Paul was writing to a church that was not just some random church in nowhere, but it was a church that had a context, right? And to know the story of the city of Ephesus helps us to understand Paul's heart as he writes this letter. So over the next three months, as we talk about what Paul is saying, as we talk about the, the depths of these truths, we need to understand the story of this city and the story of this church. This is a reconstruction of the temple to Diana. Now, if you're reading somewhere, it might alternately say Artemis, okay? But either Diana or Artemis, this was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Have you heard of that? The, the seven wonders of the world. I think there were at one point eight wonders of the world. Pretty impressive. And this was one of them. And it was located in Ephesus, and it kind of dominated the religious and the cultural scene there. Everyone was either a worshiper of this goddess named Diana, or at the very least, they profited from her. We know from the book of Acts, from Paul, the record of Paul's travels in the city of Ephesus, that the entire city needed 
this temple and the, the religion and all the rituals that surrounded it, they needed it in order for their economy to prosper. So even if you didn't personally worship Diana in this temple, you still needed the worship of Diana to go on. But you see, Paul had spent a little bit of time in this city. He'd gone toe-to-toe with worshipers of Diana as he had spent time in Acts chapter 19. The entire chapter pretty much records some of his travels in Ephesus. He went there at least two times that we know of. And one of those occasions, he spent two and a half years there. And he, he preached and he trained leaders and he worked to establish this church. So you could say that the church that Paul was writing to when he wrote the letter Ephesians was a brand new church plant, kind of like Mosaic. Another similarity that it would have is that it was a multi-ethnic church plant. We know from Acts chapter 19 that this church was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, which at that point was still a revolutionary thing because the church had begun as a Jew-only movement. But then... In Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13, ethnic barriers begin to be crossed as Paul and some others like him begin to reach the Gentiles. We know from Acts 19 that this brand new church, this church plant that is starting to get off the ground in Ephesus is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul writes the book of Ephesians to urge them to be united for the sake of the gospel. The book of Ephesians is about many things. It has a lot of different themes. Love is a a major theme in this book. Reconciliation is a major theme in this book. Another major theme that we'll talk about from time to time over the next three months is the idea of of Paul had this vision of of spiritual struggle, spiritual battle. He talked about demons and and the princes of the power of the air and things going on. and, And when you read Acts chapter 19, where Paul spends time in Ephesus, he had one what we would call power encounter after another. There were exorcisms, there were healings, there was like lots of weird magic and sorcery and witchcraft, a lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff that you'd be like, oh, that's just a Hollywood movie, except it's in the Bible, it really happened. This was the church that Paul writes to, this brand new church that's struggling to survive, that's that's Jew and Gentile and trying to figure out how that whole thing is supposed to work. And they're surrounded by all of these these people who are focusing on magic and power and spiritism and they're, they're trying to figure out. How do we be the church in the midst of this, of this crazy city in which we live? So Paul urges this church to be one in Christ. Over and over again throughout the book, that is the overriding theme. He's telling them for the sake of the gospel, be a church, be a family that is one in Christ. So with that kind of brief intro to the whole book, Let's dive into the passage for today. Title of my sermon is At Any Cost. At Any Cost. And we're going to cover verses 3 to 14. So I should have them up here on the screen. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, as I was reading along, you probably noticed some highlighted words that were highlighted in blue. What was the phrase, or there was a variation on the phrase that was repeated several times through those 12 verses. What was the phrase? In Christ, okay? Paul, in 10 out of these 12 verses, said in Christ or in him or some variation of that. Now, if there are 12 verses and in 10 out of the 12 verses, the writer says the same thing, do you think it might be important? Do you think he's trying to make a point here? See, this is how we we study the Bible. I would just encourage you. This is a, a very simple thing that you can do as you're studying God's word every day. Pick it up. An underline, take a, a colored pencil or a marker or something. And when you see the same word that's popping up, whether it's love or, or whether it's Jesus or whatever it is, and it's popping up and you're like, man, love is mentioned seven times in these three verses. Maybe God is trying to tell me something about love, right? It's just common sense. So in this passage, we see 10 times in 12 verses that Paul says something about being in Christ. So I've got it on the screen what That means to be in Christ means that we were united to Jesus through the cross. As a result, when the father looks at you, he sees his son. To be in Christ means that we were united to Jesus through the cross. As a result, when the father looks at you, he sees his son. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that God made a declaration. That God made a determination that he was going to take you, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you became a Christian, he was going to retroactively take you and say, you know what, when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. When Jesus raised from the dead, you were raised with him. When Jesus ascended back into heaven and he's seated in the heavenlies with all spiritual blessings, you were seated with him. Now, if I said that about myself, that would seem kind of cocky, right? If I said, hey, when Jesus died... I died with him. When Jesus was buried, I died with him. And I was buried with him. When Jesus was raised, I was raised with him. When Jesus went back to heaven, I went back with him. If I just stood up and said that, you would run me out of here, properly so. But Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares it to be truth. Why? Simply because that's the way that God declared it to be. And God doesn't have to explain exactly why he does what he does, but to be in Christ means that God has made a determination. 
that when we trust Jesus, we are somehow united with him, we are brought into his family, and we are one with Jesus. Not in the sense that we are God. We are never God, okay? And we'll never evolve to be like God. But we are one with Christ. We are co-heirs. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ so that when the Father looks at you, he sees his son. And the implications of that are staggering. If you are a genuine child of God, if you have put your faith in Jesus and you are having a bad day, you don't feel very spiritual. You don't feel very lovable. Remember what God sees when he looks at you. He sees his son. What this passage in verse 7 calls the beloved. John 3.16 says the same thing, that this is God's one and only beloved son. And that is who God sees when he looks at you. And this is one of these central ideas that runs throughout the book of Ephesians. 36 times in this brief letter, Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him or something like that. Because he understands that the basis for unity... And Ephesians talks a lot about unity. It talks about how, how people groups can be united in chapters 2 and 3. It talks about how marriages can be united, husbands and wives and, and parents and kids and enemies. All different kinds of people can be united. But the basis for that unity is unity with Jesus Christ accomplished through the cross. Because God has declared Christians to be in Christ. And because they are in Christ... They can be one, one in Christ. Here's the big idea of this sermon. If you remember anything at all, I want you to remember this. God went to great lengths to save you. God went to great lengths to save you. I've got a picture of a snowman. Now, you can't see the whole picture, but this I saw this on Twitter uh, this week. This is a real snowman. Uh, I think this is actually a picture of last year's snowman, but the same people are doing it again. It's in a suburb, uh, I think just north of the city here. Uh, they have this 15-foot snowman called Frosty. And uh, they are trying to stave off natural disaster for this snowman to make him last as long as possible. Last year, they got Frosty to last into April. The way they did that was they had a, a GoFundMe campaign where they solicited snow donations from people all over and people sent them lots of extra snow. They were able to reinforce and when he was melting, they'd bring out more snow and they'd, they'd try to hold it together and they managed to keep Frosty going until April. And they are trying to do the same thing this year because now there's media publicity. Now they're kind of famous. This was on, I think, Fox News. It was national. Um, but... Uh, what they did a couple of weeks ago when we had all that rain is they were actually out there on ladders wrapping their 15-foot snowman in sheets of plastic to try to protect him because it was raining. And what happens to a snowman when it rains? Snowman dies, right? <laughs> and they can't lose Frosty. They are going to great lengths to save their snowman. They're raising money. They're up there on a ladder trying to save a snowman's life because it's important to them. God went to great lengths to save you. 
God went to great lengths to save you. You might think, I would never get up on a ladder and try to wrap a 15-foot snowman in a sheet of plastic. That's just dumb. I'm glad that God had a different perspective about us. This passage, these 12 verses reveal that God went to great lengths to save you and I. Now, this passage, I don't want it to be dry and dusty and academic. Sometimes these are some pretty deep truths that we're about to dive into. And it can seem dry and dusty and academic at times. But when Paul was writing this, it was nowhere close to being dry and dusty and academic. Many of you know that that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And this entire passage is one sentence. Twelve verses, one sentence. I know we have several teachers in here. Do, Do any of our teachers teach English? Anybody? I don't know. Okay, but everybody knows, right? Run-on sentences are not a good thing. You're supposed to use periods every once in a while. Everybody knows that, right? Okay, well, what Paul does, though, is he's just so excited. He's talking about the role of God the Father in saving human beings. He's talking about the role of God the Son in saving human beings. He's talking about the role of God the Holy Spirit in saving human beings. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I can just imagine him. He's writing and he's writing and the, and the sheets are flying. And he's just writing and he's writing and the sheets are flying. And he can't, he can't even take a breath. He's just talking and he's so excited. You know, you've been there before, right? Somebody stepped out a couple of weeks ago. They, they step out, they're using the restroom, and they miss the coolest Super Bowl commercial. And when they come back in, you're like, oh, man, you just missed this great Doritos commercial. Let me tell you all about it. And you're just so excited, and you don't stop to breathe because you're so excited. You are passionate about something cool. That's what Paul does here. He throws all the rules of Greek grammar out the window to, to, to just write because he's so excited at what God has done to save us So one sentence, 12 verses. Now, when you're reading it in your English Bibles, there are periods, okay? The translators tried to make it easier on us so that we can read it because we need to take breaths. I'm a little winded right now just from trying to be breathless. Um, But Paul was so excited because God had gone to great lengths to save us. So as we dive into this, Let's not do it as academics, but as worshipers who are like Paul, just a little bit breathless. Because I think that God would want us to take a look at this passage and revel in the riches of God's grace to splash in the ocean of God's love. In this passage, we see two things that each member of the Trinity does to bring about our salvation. If you know anything about Christianity, Christians believe that God is one God made up of three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this passage, the Father does two things to save us. The Son does two things to save us. The Spirit does two things to save us. So we're going to talk very briefly about each of those. I realize some of these things are going to raise some questions that I won't necessarily have the time to answer in one sermon. So ask your missional family leader. I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, you can do that. That's cool. Or you can ask me later, ask Woodley later, um, and we can have ongoing dialogue if you have questions. The first thing that the Father did for us is that the Father chose us for holiness. The Father chose us to be holy and blameless. 
Verse 4 says that God the Father chose us in Him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. So, a couple of key things about this verse. It says that God chose us in who? In Christ. Christ, Okay, that's a significant phrase again. God chose us, the Father chose us in Christ. Then it says He chose us before the foundation of the world. So what does that mean? Well, let's think about time for a second. Back in the day, thousands of years ago, whenever that was, God made planet Earth, right? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, he created time at that moment. Before that, and I realize that it gets complicated to say before that because there was no time before that, but I can't comprehend no time, so I'm going to talk that way. Before that, there was just God. There was the Father, there was the Son, and there was the Holy Spirit. And, and in Genesis 1.1, he creates the world. Everything comes into being. But before that, this verse says that God the Father chose us. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And I think by extension, all churches everywhere, all followers of Jesus Christ. He chose us to be holy and blameless in Christ. Um, I think there's three basic ways that different Christians have interpreted this verse. Uh, And I'm going to explain those three views. I'm going to tell you which one I lean towards, and then we're going to move on. This verse can be pretty controversial. What I want you to know is that each of these three views is acceptable within the church of God. Okay? If you're a Christian and you believe one of these three views and it happens to be different from the one that I have, that's cool. All right? There's more important things to get uptight over. Um, But here's the three views of what it means that God shows us in Christ to be holy and blameless. First one is that God predetermined way back before he ever made the world that God picked who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell. Okay? That's one view. That God simply based on his own will, his own desires, he chose who was one day going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell. Second view is that uh, God chose us, but he chose us on the basis of The fact that he knew everything. So he knew what was going to one day happen. And he knew, for instance, that Stephen Stallard in 1988 was going to make a decision to put his faith in Jesus. So under that theory, way back here, before the foundation of the world, before the world has ever been created, God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that Stephen, at five years of age, was going to put his faith in Jesus. And he said, therefore, because I know he's going to put his faith in me, I choose him. Okay, so that's the second view. First view is God just chooses. Second view, God chooses based on what he knows is going to happen. The third view is the view that I lean towards. And it's the idea that God is not so much picking individuals in this passage, but that he's picking a church. 36 times I've said that in um, Ephesians, the phrase in Christ or in him is referenced. And there is a heavy emphasis on the church together throughout the book of Ephesians. And when it's talking about how we are chosen in verse four, that we are chosen in him, verse five, we are predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says something similar, that I believe that there's this emphasis that God is choosing his family. 
Not that he's choosing individuals who may or may not go to heaven, but that he's choosing his church, his family, to be this bride of Christ who will, who will carry out his mission and who will storm the gates of hell on his behalf. Now, I realize that just raises a whole lot of questions, okay? Um, and maybe you're not sure about my interpretation of that and you want to talk more, we can do that. But regardless of which of those three views that you hold, this verse should be incredibly encouraging to us because whatever you think it means, it does mean that the Father chose you because he loved you. Whether he chose you because he loved you based on what he saw you do ahead of time or whether he just wanted to do it, the Father chose you and he chose you for holiness. He chose you to be blameless. He chose you to be part of his church. He chose you to be part of his family. As the writer Philip Yancey said, the whole story of the Bible is that God gets his family back. And Ephesians, we see that God's plan for getting his family back started way back before he ever lost his family. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned against God, God had a plan to restore and to redeem and to get his family back and to create this body, this bride of Christ, this family of God who would demonstrate to all the world and these demons who are watching that Jesus alone is supreme. So Paul, he begins to get excited as he's writing this because he knows that our salvation started way back before the world ever began. Way back and forever ago, literally forever ago, God was thinking about you. That doesn't encourage you. I don't think anything could. Second thing is that the Father predestined us for adoption. Verse 5 talks about this. That we have been predestined by the Father for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Building off of the idea of verse 4. And this has a similar idea that the Father has determined that we will be part of his family. That we are adopted as sons or daughters of the great king. Now, adoption was very significant um, in the ancient world in which Paul lived. And Paul was a Jew, but he was also a Roman. And I think he's writing with this Roman idea of adoption in your mind, in his mind. And, and he's writing it. And there was this idea that if you wanted to carry on the family name, say you didn't have any sons, right? So you want to go adopt a son and give him your name so that you will have an heir. That was the idea of Roman adoption. But when you did that, you couldn't undo it. It was, it was great love and care and concern, and it was all about the family. That's what Paul is writing. He's saying, way back when, forever ago, the Father picked you to bear his name, to carry on the family name, to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ so that you could call God your Father and Jesus your brother and to be part of this family of God called the church. The Father chose us for holiness. The Father predestined us to be adopted into his family. But then there's the Son. We call him Jesus. The Son does two things to affect our salvation as well. The first is he redeemed us. The Son redeemed us. Now we throw around the word redeem or redemption a lot. We say, oh well, he redeemed himself, you know. Carmelo Anthony, he made, a, he made a bad shot, but he came back on the next play and he stopped the guy on defense and then he took the ball back and he, he dunked it. So he redeemed himself. And that's how, we, that's how we use the language and the lingo. 
But when Paul was writing it, it's a little bit different. So I've got a picture here that I hope will help us understand. Do we have a picture there? Pawn shop. We have lots of pawn shops throughout New York City, right? You probably passed a few on your way here. So let's just imagine this scenario. Let's say you're one of the, one of the women here today, and you have got this priceless diamond ring from your grandma. It's kind of a family heirloom. It's been passed down to all the women in the family, and it's worth $3,000. But to you, it's worth way more than that because it's from your grandma, and, and it's just sentimental. It's priceless. It's valuable. But you've fallen on hard times. You're out of work. You've tried everything else. You've tried to get a micro loan from the bank. They won't help you. Your friends won't help you. You're not part of a church, so you don't have, have a church family to ask for help. And so what you do when you're at the end of the line is you take that $3,000 ring and you walk into the pawn shop. And you sell it. And you walk out with $3,000 and you're like, okay, well... Maybe I can make it another couple of weeks now. Maybe I can make it a month, start trying to pay some of my bills back that I've owed for a while, and maybe my luck will turn. But then the next day, you find out that you have this crazy rich uncle that you never knew about. He's like, I didn't know, I didn't know you were having problems. Here's a million dollars. He's like, sweet. Now, what do you think is the first thing you're going to do with your, with your new money? If you really love that ring, I think probably the first $3,000 is already spent in your mind. You walk right back into that pawn shop the very next day. You've got a lot of cash in your purse, and you're like, excuse me, I know I sold you this ring yesterday. Is it still here? Yeah, it's still here. I'd like to buy it back. I want to redeem it. I want to purchase it back for myself because it is of great value and significance to me. But the guy's a little bit of a con artist. He says, well, inflation has occurred. It's worth $8,000 now. And you're like, you're, you're, you're a low life. You say some bad things to him. And then, then you're like, you know what? But I've got a million dollars now. So what's $8,000? So you hand him $8,000 and you walk back out with your ring. You have redeemed it. You have bought back that which was yours. When Paul says that the son redeemed us through his shed blood on the cross, what it is saying is that Jesus bought us back. He lost us in Genesis. That's when God lost his family, when mankind rebelled against its creator. But in the church, God redeems a huge segment of the human race. He buys us back. But the price is not $8,000. It's every drop of blood in Jesus' veins. You see, he had to lay down his life for you and I because you and I were sinners. We were rebels against God. In, in chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to learn how we were dead in our sins, how we were far from God. I had no interest in God. We were just like walking around like zombies, as it were, from a spiritual perspective. But God proves his love for us in going to the cross, laying down his life, spilling every last drop of blood for you and for me. What is he doing? A lot of times we, <clears throat> we just wear the cross on a chain around our neck or have a, have a crucifix on a picture somewhere, and we think that's cool. 
I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a, a cross necklace, but the cross is more than about inspiring us. It's more than showing us what a good role model for suffering is. Sure, we can learn a lot from looking at how Jesus suffered on the cross. Sure, the cross is inspirational, but it is more than that. It is the heart of Christianity. The cross is the symbol of everything that we believe because it was here that this God who planned all of this in eternity past goes to the cross to redeem out of the pawn shop of sin, to redeem his family, to buy us back from our sin at any cost. There was no price too high to pay for Jesus to buy back his family, to redeem this church, to create this bride of Christ at any cost. That is the perspective of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as they work throughout eternity to bring about our salvation. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. But the Son also did another thing. Actually, this one is still yet to come, according to this passage. Verse 9 says that God purposed in Christ that um, his will would be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The second thing that the Son does for our salvation is that the Son will reconcile all things. The Son will reconcile all things. Verse 10 says very clearly that one day, when the times reach their fulfillment, it's a way of saying at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, when he, when he brings in his kingdom, when, when we stand upon the new earth and all those tears get wiped away, everything that we're longing for, when it comes, there will be a unity of all things in heaven and on earth, and that unity will be centered upon Jesus Christ. You see, again, this is all part of God's plan that he's been working from eternity past. His family messed things up in the garden. And they didn't just mess up a a human relationship with God. They messed up human relationships with one another. They messed up the, the environment, right? We have a world that is groaning, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. It is groaning under the oppressive weight of sin structures, God told Adam, yeah, go be, go be a gardener, but now it's going to be hard. There's going to be thorns growing up from the ground. <clears throat> he told Eve, yeah, go have children, but now it's going to be hard. Labor is going to be intense in a way that it never would have been before. The very environment, everything about this universe has been cursed by sin. But according to verse 10, one day God is going to unite all things in Jesus Christ. There will be an ultimate reconciliation of the universe under and in Jesus Christ, this total salvation, this total reconciliation that is the son's plan. But what about the Holy Spirit? Christians talk about the father. They talk about the son. They talk about the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14 reference what the Holy Spirit is doing or, uh, yeah, in this case, these are two things that he's still in process of doing to affect our salvation. First off, the Spirit sealed us. The Spirit sealed us. Look at verse number 13. 
about halfway through the verse, it says, when you believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, back then, uh, they would have, they wrote a lot of letters, right? So if you were like the king or the queen or the mayor of the city or whatever, and you were sending some official correspondence, an official letter to somebody, you would want that letter to be sealed with your official seal so that when people got it, they'd know this is not from some imposter. This is really from the king or this is really from the mayor. I should take this seriously. So what you do is you'd have your, you know, your, your ring or something like that. You dip it in the hot wax and then you put it on the, on the envelope, on the parchment, on the scroll, and it would be your seal and it would demonstrate ownership. It would demonstrate that this writing belongs to this man. When it says that the Holy Spirit marks us with a seal, it signifies ownership. Now, to help us understand that, I've got a picture here of a tattoo parlor in Portland. Now, you may or may not have done this before, but I think you'll all get it, even if you haven't personally done this. When a couple are in love and they walk into a tattoo parlor together, what do they typically do when they're in there together and they're in love? They get one another's names tattooed on them, right? So it'd be like me and Sonia walking into a tattoo parlor, okay? And uh, I get Sonia tattooed on my arm and she gets Steven tattooed on her arm. What does that signify? That I belong to Sonia and Sonia belongs to me. The Holy Spirit inked us with what one writer called a soul tattoo. The Holy Spirit, according to verse 13, marks us in him with a seal. He is putting his brand upon us, saying, these are mine. This is my family. They belong to me. It signifies ownership. It signifies identity. It is a soul tattoo. And when the Holy Spirit inks you, can't undo it. There's one more thing the Spirit does. Verse 14, the Spirit secures us. The Spirit secures us. It says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The Spirit secures us. Now it calls... In this verse, it calls the Holy Spirit a deposit, a down payment. And I think we've all probably made a deposit for something before. Uh, let's say that uh, you, you fall in love and you want to buy a girl a diamond ring, right? So you want to propose to her, but you've got to save up for this ring, <clears throat> and it's a $5,000 ring. But you only have $1,000 right now. But you've got this ring picked out that you really want, so what are you going to do? You're going to go into the jeweler, and you're going to say... Here's a thousand down and I'm going to come back over the next four months and I'm going to bring a thousand every month so that at the end of five months, I walk out and the ring is mine and I can propose to the girl of my dreams. That down payment is a promise that there is more to come because you really love that girl. You really want that ring so that down payment Might as well be the full $5,000 because you are coming back. Your promise is something that you can take to the bank. 
the Holy Spirit, according to verse 14, is a deposit. He is a down payment ensuring that there is more to come. Verse 13 is just said that we belong to God. That's the idea of this seal, that we are branded by the Holy Spirit. So we are his. We belong to his family. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit in our lives is proof that this is going to take place forever. Because nothing can take me out of God's family. I have been given a down payment by the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost never defaults on his payments. Right? Maybe you and I have. Maybe you've gone bankrupt or maybe you've missed a payment and had to make it up. Maybe you've struggled with rent or your mortgage or medical bills. But the Holy Spirit never does. You see, when he says he is our deposit, this is really money in the bank. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking real money, right? This is a metaphor that Paul is using. But the Holy Spirit, as our deposit, it's as good as having the whole 5,000 right now. Because the Holy Spirit, for crying out loud, is your deposit. It doesn't get any better than that. It, I mean, this is like, it's like having a, 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 a whole brick of gold, if we're going to keep the money analogy. This is like, I don't even need the rest of the payments. I've got the deposit. I've got the down payment. I've got the Holy Spirit of God who does not default on what he's promised. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Paul has gone 12 verses without taking a breath. He has waxed eloquent under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell this Ephesian church these Christians who are struggling to figure out how they're supposed to exist. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are Gentiles. They've never coexisted before. But now they're one family. And, and they're trying to figure out how to make it work. And they're surrounded by all of these people who are worshiping the goddess Diana. They're not sure what to do. And Paul writes to this church and he says, hey, before we get into anything else, just know you are loved by God. God has gone to great lengths to save you. The Father did his peace. The Son did and is still doing his peace. And the Holy Spirit did and is still doing his peace. The entire Trinity has gotten in on the act because it is so important to God. You are so important to God. This church is so important to God. The family of God is important to God. So Paul has gone for 12 verses without taking a breath. He's so excited. He's so passionate. He wants this church to understand that the basis for the unity that he's going to talk about, the unity between Jew and Gentile, the unity between husbands and wives and parents and kids, and the unity between enemies, none of that unity is possible unless we are first united to Jesus Christ, unless we are in Christ and therefore reconciled to God. That is what makes unity with people possible. What do we do? When we read a passage like this with some high-flying, majestic, soaring truths, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, I want to answer that first by sharing a quote from a song. 
Rachel Platten's song, Stand By You, says, Even if we can't find heaven, I'll walk through hell with you. The message of the gospel is that Jesus walked through hell for you so that you could find heaven. Jesus has already walked through hell for you. That's what happened on the cross. So what is the first thing that we do out of the three points of application I have? First off is that we accept God's love. We accept God's love. Maybe you're here today and some of what I'm saying sounds familiar and some of it doesn't. You're not sure. Maybe you're not sure that you'd call yourself a Christian or not sure that you're even part of this family of God that I've been describing. I think the most important thing that we do in response to a passage like this is we accept God's love. Remember when I said that Jesus redeemed us? It's like Jesus walked into the pawn shop of sin and he, he put his life down on the counter to buy us back. Every drop of blood was drained from his veins so that he could save you. Because way back in eternity past, God was thinking about you and choosing you to be part of this family of God, this bride of Christ. And he invites you to respond. He invites you to accept his love. If you're not sure that you're a Christian, you're not sure that heaven is your home, I encourage you to talk to me after the service, talk to Woodley, talk to Brian. We would love to have that conversation with you because you can know for sure if you are a part of God's family. Maybe you already feel that you're a part of God's family, but you still struggle with accepting God's love. You had a bad day at the office. You didn't get the grade on that test that you wanted. Had a rough month financially, and you made a bad decision, and you're regretting it now. You're beating yourself up because you are not the parent that you think that you should be. Before you go beating yourself up, just remember... God went to great lengths to save you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit went to great lengths to save you. On my darkest of days, this is an encouragement to me. Maybe I think on a Monday that I'm not a good enough pastor. I have to remember God went to great lengths. Maybe you think that you're not a good enough mom or a good enough teacher. Maybe you think that you don't have what it takes in your marriage. Maybe you're single. You feel like you're never going to get married. You feel like you're broken somehow. God went to great lengths to save you. Therefore, you are valuable and you are loved. That's our starting point. We accept God's love. Second thing that we do is we spread the gospel. This has been a deep diving exploration of what God has done for us. We have reveled in the riches of God's grace. We have splashed in the ocean of his love. But if all of this is true, and I believe it is, then... We have a responsibility to share that message with others. If the most coolest thing in the world 
was true for you, and it was true for everybody else, but you kept it to yourself, and it wouldn't be too long. Paul, I'm so glad he didn't keep these 12 verses to himself. You know, can you imagine? The Holy Spirit was coming to him and inspiring him, and, and he's getting ready to write, but he's like, oh, no. Like, I want to keep that to myself, that, that part about the Father and that part about the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's so cool! Keeping that for me. You know, Paul understood that these were church truths. These were to be shared with the church, and the church was to be a church that was on mission with Jesus, sharing these truths for the sake of the world. In response to a passage like this, we spread the gospel. And then finally, we praise God. Four times in this passage, it says something about praising God. Usually it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, Paul's response to these incredible truths is to shout. It's to dance. Sometimes verses like these, we have the total opposite approach from Paul. We dissect and we, we make it abstract and we argue and we make it real formal and intellectual. But Paul here, I'm convinced, is jumping up and dancing on his desk as he's writing these 12 verses because the Holy Spirit has just inspired him to write the most incredible run-on sentence in the history of the human race. This is cool! He is dancing in the fields of grace, as one writer says. So, how do we respond as a church how do we respond as individuals to a message like this? Praise God. We give thanks. Because on our darkest of days, we are loved deeply. Because God has gone to great lengths to save us. Let's pray.